Today we're going to take a dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 1 to 17. So please get your Bibles and join us. We'll start by reading verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now let's think about this little introduction for a while. Remember, Susan told us last week that letters were started by saying who it was from at that time. Where for us, in our culture, we generally end with who it is from. So, if you were starting an important letter, how would you start it? So, let's just take what Paul said here and insert our own names. So, Jennifer, called by the will of God to be what? How would you fill in your name and your blanks to be what? So, I thought about, hmm, called by the will of God to be a mom. Called by the will of God to be a wife. Called by the will of God to be a physical therapist or a missionary. All of these came to mind. But as I thought about it more deeply, more importantly, I'm called by the will of God to be a daughter of the King of the world. So the question is, where is our identity? Is our identity in our roles or who we are in Christ? In Paul's 13 letters, he almost always begins by telling us who he is in relation to God and who we are in relation to God. So here Paul says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So what does this mean? God clearly called Paul and clearly changed the direction of his life on the road to Damascus. He, in fact, knocked him to the ground, made him blind and everything, and Paul went from being a persecutor of Christians to becoming a Christian himself and doing God's will. And now he has a God-centered self-understanding. So let's go into verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So what does it mean to be sanctified? Well, a lot of this will be covered in group discussion, but I'll say a few words about it here. Sanctification is both a lifetime process and a daily process. Some people ask, was sanctification something that occurred before? Is it occurring now? Will it occur in the future? And the answer is yes, basically to all of them. It, underneath and behind the lifelong process, there's a decision, a decisive break, where we turn from being sinful and turn toward God. God desires us to be saints, to be sanctified in Christ Jesus. And then he continues to sanctify us day by day, making us more like him each day. Now, in this verse 2, the word called is used, called to be saints together. Being called is a central theme in 1 Corinthians. In this chapter, it's repeated in verse 2, 9, 24, and 26. We'll talk a little bit more about this when we get to verse 9. And remember, those whom God calls, they respond. And he also talks about, right after that, to be saints together. Called to be saints together. Unity is also a central theme in 1 Corinthians. And it comes into play right here from verse 2. So the two, two of the main themes in 1 Corinthians are put right up front in the second verse, for not even past the second verse. We'll talk more about unity when we get to verse 10. Alright, verse 3. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow, what if we greeted each other this way? 
think of a name, Mary. Grace and peace to you. I had a little bit of an example of this when I was in Uganda. When people would, when believers would greet one another in Uganda, they would say Mukama Simwe, which is translated to be praise the Lord or praise God. That was the first thing they would say. And we still have some sons in Uganda. When the one writes to me, he always says, praise God, mom. And then he goes on to say whatever he has to say. It's always the first thing he says. So let's think about how we greet each other and think about if we can be more encouraging in the way that we greet other people. Okay, let's move on to verses 4 to 6. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Jesus Christ, that you in, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So, think about it. What if we, when we needed to correct someone, because the primary, one of the primary purposes that Paul is writing this book is to correct the Corinthians because there are divisions among them. So, but instead of going right straight for the throat, you know, right straight for the, the difficulty, he first takes time to thank God for them. So what if we did that if we needed to correct someone? Take time to thank God for them. Okay, and even if you look at it, what is he primarily thankful for? Interestingly, he's primarily thankful for God's work in them, not necessarily exactly what they are doing. So if we're interacting with another believer, God is always at work with them, so there's always something to be thankful for when we're talking to them. So we can always be looking for what God is doing in people's lives. Now, verses 7 to 9, I want to read this in two different translations, the ESV, which is what we're using, and also the message. So that you are not lacking in any good gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And sometimes I think another translation can just be helpful to give us a little bit of a different slant on something. I, th I love the way that the message puts this, and I think it's just... Uh, very powerful the way that it says it. Just think, you don't need a thing. You've got it all. All God's gifts are right in front of you as you wait expectantly for our Master Jesus to arrive on the scene for the finale. And not only that, but God himself is right alongside to keep you steady and on track until things are all wrapped up by Jesus. God, who got you started in this spiritual adventure, shares with us the life of his Son, our Master, Jesus. He will never give up on you. Never forget that. So I just thought that was a really special way to uh, present those verses and uh, in kind of common language, which is one of the things that comes from the message. Uh, so it just can be an encouragement. Do you really feel and from verse 7, that you are not lacking in any good gift. Too often, as women especially, we tend to compare ourselves to others. We wish that we had that person's gift or another person's looks or anything like that. We, ha we are wishing for something that we aren't rather than being thankful 
for what the Lord has given us and trying to use that for his glory and for his honor. In verse 8, what significance does God confirming us to the end of God confirming us to the end of being blameless on the day of Christ Jesus. What significance does this have? He is faithful. He is faithful to keep us in him, and his faithfulness cannot be broken. And this gives us great hope. In verse 9, what does it mean to be called by God into fellowship with Jesus? Well, God's goal of calling us is to call us into fellowship with the Son who gives us life. He desires to have intimate fellowship with us, and that's why he saved us. That's why he sent Jesus to save us, so he could have intimate fellowship with his people that he has saved. Now we're going to spend a little bit longer looking at verse 10 and 11, but more especially 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Why is unity so important to the Lord? Well, some of that comes in our small group discussion, but we're going to spend a little time on it here. Our Savior was crucified to end our divisions, commands us to be united, and says we will impact the world when we will become one. This is a quote from Francis Chan's book, Until Unity. I highly recommend this book. It was a delight to read it in preparation for this, and I learned so much from it and was challenged so much by it. So there are some warnings that Scripture has. There are many, but I've just picked two for today. Uh, the first one I'm going to read is from Proverbs 6, verses 16 to 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who declares lies, and one who spreads strife among the brothers. Things that the Lord hates, one who spreads strife among brothers. So that is a very convicting warning. And then we look at 1 John 2, 9 to 11. The one who says that he is the light and yet hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother and sister remains in the light and there is nothing in him to cause stumbling. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is, where he's going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So hating our brothers and sisters makes us be in darkness and blinds us. So a paraphrase from Chan's book is, We tend to be very good about heeding warnings in scripture about sexual sin or not killing but not so good about heeding warnings about unity. We divide very easily because we love shallowly. Do we value being together and having unity more than we value being right? A great enemy of unity is selfish ambition and pride. 
Lots of verses in unity are noted in the Bible. All right, but I, again, I just picked out a couple for today. Isaiah 66, verse 1 to 2, this is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool for my feet. Where there is a house, you, where then is a house that you could build for me? Where is there a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. So all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But I will look to this one, at one who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. So God actually says he will look at the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and the, who trembles at his word. And that is a person, if they're trembling at his word and they're humble and contrite in spirit, they're more likely to be one promoting unity than one bringing division. Ephesians 4 is also a great summary of unity. Verses 1 to 6 is what we're going to read. Therefore, I... The prisoner of the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called into one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is over all and through all in all. Unity is a huge theme in the book of First Corinthians. Chan says, from start to finish, Paul's letters to the Corinthians was meant to bring them together in love and lead them to repent. And I'm going to just give a little summary of that he gives here. Paul doesn't just spend the first chapter of Corinthians speaking of boasting and division. This theme runs through the whole letter. In chapter 6, he confronts the fact that believers were suing each other for the world to see instead of taking on a Christ-like attitude of why not rather suffer wrong. In chapter 7, he addresses their divorces. In chapter 8, he confronts their arrogance that is destroying their brothers. In chapter 11, he says, their celebration of the Lord's Supper does more harm than good because of their divisions. In chapter 12, he reminds them that they are a body, and therefore it is ridiculous for one part to look at any other part with an I have no need of you attitude. Chapters 13 and 14 explain that it is their lack of love that causes even their spiritual gifts to be used for boasting and dividing rather than for building each other up. From start to finish, his letter to Corinthians was meant to bring them together in love and lead them to repent of their divisions. <clears throat> now, let's look at verses 12 and 13. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Wow. Whom should we follow? Who should we be with? Paul? Apollos? Jesus? Of course Jesus. It's all about Jesus. What matters is not who baptizes you, but into whom you are baptized. 
The center of our attention in this act should not be the method or the place or the person baptizing, but rather on Jesus Christ, his death for our sin, and his glorious resurrection. And may that be the case for, and may that be the focus today to his praise and glory. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And let's look at verses 14 to 16. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptizing, you were baptized in my name. I did baptize the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So isn't it odd that Paul says he's happy that he didn't baptize any of them when the Great Commission says, go into all the world, preaching the gospel, and baptizing? Is Paul against baptizing? Clearly not. He baptizes some of the Corinthians, and he baptized the jailer when he who was saved. In many verses, he writes, say that believers should be baptized. So Paul has a lot of authority in this in those days, and he was becoming quite popular. So he didn't want people to be proud that Paul is the one to baptize them. So he tended to let other people baptize people rather than baptize them himself. He wanted the focus to be on Christ and not on him. So he often had other people do the baptizing. And the final verse of this section is, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So what was most important to Paul? What was most important was that the gospel would be preached in a way that Christ would be lifted up, rather than Paul being lifted up. May that be what is most important to us as well. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this time to look at your word. Your word is so deep and there's so much in it. And thanks for a chance to learn. And we pray that you would enable us to apply it to our lives. We pray that we would grow in love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would desire unity. That we would repair divisions. That we would also keep our focus on you and you alone. And remember, it's about you. It's not about me. May you be honored and glorified with us. And thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.